Hi, I'm Mike Allen, Head of Research at Zeus, and today I'm talking about some of the key themes in the world of US automotive ventures with Steve Greenfield. Steve has not only founded his own VC company in the US, is a board member advisor to a plethora of exciting startups, but is also an author of the book, The Future of Automotive Retail, and is a must read in my view. Steve, it's a real pleasure to have you on, and thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me. You have a very interesting background. Would, would you mind giving me a summary of your career to date, please? Yeah, Mike, well, well, thanks for having me. I'll start with that, and I really appreciate it. Um, it's great to be here today. Um, the, the, the high level is about 23 years now in automotive, uh, never on the retail side, but uh, you know, basically working for a, a number of different companies that sold into dealers, uh, vendors into dealers, 10 years with uh, the largest B2B auction marketplace in the world, Mannheim which yeah. brought me down from Toronto down, down to the US. And then five years with a sister company, Auto Trader, overseeing yeah. acquisitions. And then more recently, a couple of years on the West Coast of the US um, with uh, TrueCar, a publicly traded competitor to Auto Trader. And then as you said, left the corporate world just over three years ago. And, and now we're raising our second VC fund focused on early stage mobility and automotive technology. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating space and it's, it's a real pleasure reading some of your work in that area as well. But perhaps without further ado, if we get into some of the key themes and issues you're seeing in the US market, I mean, I guess maybe we start with a, a summary of findings that you recently published in your Auto Intel report for February. I know you're a key speaker at NADA and there's a lot of networking discussions around the next five years for the industry. But how do you summarize this world uh, for our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there's a lot of anxiety right, right now and uncertainty for, for the dealers here in the U.S. And I, and I know globally as well, yeah. uh, pr primarily because of this shift to the agency model, and which is happening much more quickly overseas than the U.S. We've got you know, the, these uh, historical state franchise laws that in many ways are protecting the dealers from the OEMs moving too aggressively here in the US, but it's just manifesting in different ways. You know, the OEMs uh, introducing new, new models and new brands and then skirting the franchise dealer model. And uh, I think that uh, the, the envy that you hear in these public calls from the, the CEOs of the legacy OEMs around Tesla's margins and yeah. trying to figure out ways that they can capture that by adjusting the supply chain Know, inventory changes, marketing changes, et cetera, is, is very interesting. And I think the dealers are all downstream from that and yeah. trying to figure out how they, they can dig in and, yeah. and push push back and, and how they adjust their positioning to have a more cooperative relationship with the OEM. So that's the big one. I think out of that comes things like facility um, improvements. There's always debate around, you know, as, as more consumers are shopping online, why do I need to spend tens of millions of dollars improving my physical facilities? Yeah. And a, a lot of it now is, you know, preparing for an electrified future. And, you know, the, the, the dealers are trying to figure out how do I uh, invest in the proper uh, uh, EV charging infrastructure to do so. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the last thing I'll say is a, a, a basket of other issues out there, you know, um, you know, preparing, as I said, with EVs, I think that there's concern with dealers right now that, you know, they're, they're, we're going to flip back from being order takers to yeah. having to have like the, the memory of actually having to sell vehicles and yeah. whether my employees are going to be prepared to, to do so. And, 
you know, a, a lot of the employees have gotten used to working from home and, you know, how is that transition going to be? So a, a lot of focus on human capital and, yeah. you know, prepare, preparing for getting back to inventories mounting. And um, do I have the right people in the right seats to be able to make sure that I can navigate what, all the uncertainty with the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 these are themes we see reverberating around the UK as well. And, you know, very, very valid indeed. Um, perhaps if we move on to your fund, um, I'd be fascinated to learn what motivated you to start this, how the various funds have grown and whether you've changed your investment ph philosophy during that time as well. Great, great question. So when I, when I left the corporate world three, three years ago, I started publishing a monthly newsletter that's free. Um, and uh, found, found very quickly that entrepreneurs were reaching out to me, early stage entrepreneurs looking for funding and figured out that there aren't really good sources of capital for them. You know, yeah. Typically, VCs, as they become more successful, um, get more assets under management and get dragged up to start to focus on Series A, Series B. Yeah. You know, where, where we operate, which is the seed stage, there really aren't a lot of VCs focused, especially in automotive. So um, very quickly started to do research and decided to, to launch our, our, our first fund. And now that fund's been operating for just over two years and we've made 17 investments at the seed stage. Yeah. And then about six months into that, you know, realized that about a third of our in investors in that fund were dealer principals, uh, yeah. dealer owners. And um, we, we started to, to, to conceptualize this, this idea of this dealer fund that we've launched, which is raising money from car dealerships themselves and then investing in solutions that benefit car dealers. So very vertically focused. And we've now made two investments. We're about to make our third investment, a company actually over in the UK in the next couple of weeks. And um, we're, we're off to the races. So I think that um, harnessing you know, the collective wisdom of a bunch of very progressive forward thinking dealers into sort of what does their future look like and what solutions still need to get built to help them navigate that future. And then use that as your, your hunting license effectively to go off and find solutions that address those needs um, means that you, you, you should be able to accelerate the adoption curve of these companies that we invest in. Yeah, I mean, con congratulations for what you've achieved to date. And I can, I can see a real edge that you've got given your background, perhaps versus mainstream institutional capital, which really don't cover that area of the market as well. But I can see how you could give them kind of some sweat equity there, given your uh, expertise in the market as well. So sounds like you found a real niche. So congratulations. Well, thanks. I mean, fingers crossed. We'll see how t time plays out. But so far, it seems like we, we have some real uh, uh, high potential companies that we've invested in. Yeah, no, very good. And what, one of my favorite parts of your analysis is the Automotive Ventures retail risk assessment and I found that really insightful just seeing the various risks out there but perhaps we could discuss what areas of this constitute your highest and lowest risk scores please and perhaps the reasoning behind that. Yeah great question so really this came out of um, so I, as you mentioned earlier in the intro I got this book written and finally published last year, The Future of Automotive Retail. And then, you know, as, as, as I was recording the audio version of that, which is about six and a half hours, yeah. um, it struck me. I was like, oh, if I'm a dealer, I'm, I'm going to get to the end of this book and be not quite satisfied. I think that I, I, I need to now frame up all these trends and, and figure out, as you said, um, which ones are have a higher probability 
and what's the magnitude of the effect that these things do hit? So I, I, you know, the, the risk assessment effectively tries to do that, take all yeah. the trends in the book and then apply a, a two by two matrix, you know, probability versus magnitude of the effect. And yeah. um, as you said, as a result of that, you know, it's, it's a practical way to say what, what things have low probability or low magnitude I can ignore and which yeah. things have, have a high probability, a high magnitude. Um, and I should be paying attention to. So, you know, as you, as you asked, I would say things like full autonomy. I don't think full autonomy for, for, for humans is going to happen in my, in my lifetime. So yeah. I think that, you know, whereas five years ago, this is going to be a huge disruptive force. Consumers were no longer going to be driving their own cars. Yeah. Everyone was going to be summoning an autonomous Uber or Lyft vehicle. And, you yeah. know, as a result, no one was going to be buying vehicles. Well, that, that obviously has not materialized. And that, that threat is, yeah. is one that I, I just don't think dealers should be paying any, any attention to whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are things that like, are immediately going to affect dealers' economics. Things like EVs are going to have longer service intervals and yeah. aren't going to have to come in for regular maintenance like oil changes and spark plugs, right? Yeah. So you're going to see the consumer less frequently. Yeah. Um, with over-the-air updates, software pushes a la Tesla, you know, a lot of the recall work and warranty work that used to come back into the dealership where they would get reimbursed by the OEM is now going to be able to be done via software push in the consumer's driveway via the Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. Um, subscription services. So I think that the OEMs have signaled very strongly that they intend to effectively unbundle a lot of the features in the vehicle and allow the consumer to either pay up front at time of purchase or pay by the month for your rear heated seats or additional horsepower, whatever the feature might be. And right now, there, there's really no established ground rules for whether or not the, the, the dealer is going to be able to participate. If, if Mike Allen decides six months after buying your, your BMW that you want to activate additional horsepower, yeah. Um, that, that, that dealer that sold you the vehicle may not even be made aware that Mike Allen has activated that feature. Yeah. So is, is that original BMW dealership going to be entitled to get any of the revenue share around mm. that new high margin recurring subscription fee? And I think all of that ne needs to get worked out. And I think dealers need to be paying attention to some of these issues. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so true. And, uh, and as you say, with a lot of you know, we've, we've talked a lot about train change and transition in, in, in the UK market in the series of podcasts. And uh, it's how that is navigated and how that affects the dealers. So uh, it's so true. Um, perhaps we could also talk about valuations and what you're seeing at the moment. I mean, it's clear we're seeing some compression of ARR multiples over the last 12 months. Are there any signs that this is troughed out yet or you know, do, do you think we should expect to see more pressure on private company multiples at the moment? Well, I think it really depends on the stage, right? So whereas the public markets reset and that, that caused very late stage companies to, to reset in valuations, you know, where we invest, which is seed, which is very early, haven't really felt that much of an adjustment yet. And I think all the data kind of shows that too. So I suspect we're, we're going to continue to see some of the later stage value corrections creep yeah. back into early stage where, yeah. where we invest, which would yeah. be a good thing for us, right? Um, yeah. You know, we'll be able to invest at better valuations, but ha haven't seen a lot in the earlier stage, but definitely have heard a lot of stories around um, l later stage corrections, I think really as a result of the public markets uh, correcting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess it just takes longer, you know, for some of the uh, earlier stage for that to filter through really, but uh, no, that makes a lot of sense. 
And what advice would you give founders in the current market seeking Series A or indeed any any capital at the moment? Well, it's a great question. So, so I sit on a number of boards, um, you know, and, and the, the guidance we're giving to our portfolio companies is sort of let, let's 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 have insider led rounds, um, ideally sort of at the same the, the last valuation. So you're kind of punting on any adjustment to valuation and, you know, the the, the, the any negative connotation associated with a down round uh, where you get external capital. Funding's happening. You know, we have one of our, our portfolio companies right now that's about to take more, more money in a Series A, which is great. So um, yeah. the, the capital's out there, but a lot, a lot of the, the folks, the, the, the capital providers, the investors are just very cautious right now because yeah. they also, to your, to your earlier question, they don't know if valuations are going to reset further. And you don't want to be investing now and then have regret six months later that you could have gotten a better valuation. That looks really bad for you know your limited partners who have invested yeah. in your fund. But I, I do think that the, the best advice is you know if you've got friendly investors already in your cap table, you yeah. take take enough capital to extend your runway um, yeah. at whatever your last valuation was, and, and yeah. effectively just punt. And yeah. um, you know, punting can be dangerous if you know, valuations continue to come down. But I think at some point here we'll see things level off and start to to creep back up. And I think that uh, it'll be a more healthy funding environment. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, Steve. And finally, going back to your book and the future of automotive retail, perhaps you could outline a couple of key conclusions on what you believe will happen to dealers over the next five to ten years, and also whether any of your thinking might change since you published your book last year. Yeah, so a lot of it is driven from this retail risk assessment, as, as you mentioned. But, you know, I think that the, the beautiful, elegant thing about the dealership model is, is just how resilient it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I have a slide that I show that, you know, a dealership isn't really running one P&L. They're running yeah. up to seven or eight. You've got new cars, used cars, you've got finance, you've got these insurance products, you've got accessories. You've got parts department, you've got service, and some guys have collision as well. So, um, you know, if you, if you look at how things have progressed over the last 25 years since the beginning of the Internet, the Internet brought pretty dramatic transparency for consumers. And it, it took a lot of the margin out of the used car and new car operations and front end gross profit. What happened? Dealers started to focus much more on these other profit centers, you know, finance became more important as, as a driver of revenue and profitability insurance products and we saw pre-covid that it, at least in the us more than half of a dealer's average profit was driven through parts and service so i think that the beautiful thing about the business model is it is resilient because dealers can reallocate capital people uh, around based on you know whatever these, these externalities are these forces so i think it is a resilient model but having said that to your point Dealers need to be on their be best behavior because there are a lot of challenges coming over the next yeah. five to 10 years. And, and like I said, most of them are, are data driven, um, over the air updates, subscription services. You know, yeah. yes, there'll be changes to the, o this, the agency model. And, you know, th there'll be changes to, especially on the front end of the, the car deal, how much margin a dealer is permitted to, to, to make. But I, I think the, the legacy OEMs will see their dealer network as a source of competitive advantage, yeah. right? The economics may change somewhat between OEM and dealers, yeah. but I, I do think that having that footprint, that brand on every corner in front of consumers is going to be a big differentiator versus some of these upstart EV manufacturers that are just never going to get sort of the scale 
to make yeah. it work. You know, so I think, you know, kudos to any of these upstart EVs that went, went or EV manufacturers that went public via these SPACs. But I think yeah. it's a, it's a, it really is a scale game. And I think that that's going to be really challenging. And I think we'll, we'll conclude in five or 10 years and look back at the legacy OEMs will be thankful that they've got this dealer, the dealer network out there because it's been a source of like durable competitive advantage. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so uh, true, Steve. And, I, you know, I think we've seen early stage, you know, so-called disruptors that, that came out of COVID have, have already been disrupted as well on, on both sides of the pond, really. So uh, fascinating times as ever. Um, and Steve, really appreciate your time today and look forward to catching up with you next time you're in the UK or at the next NADA convention. Thank you. Let's do that, Mike. We'll plan on that. And, and thank you for very, very much for having me on today. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.